Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs and where we always push the limits of our understanding. We are Joe Landry and Lori Olford here with you again during the holiday season. Happy New Year to all of you. Today, of course, is the first day of the new year. And what a year it has been. Like, wow, uh, like unbelievable, uh, full of things happening, not only out in the world, but also with this show, which is now going into its third year as a podcast. Uh, we'll reach that in up in April coming up. Uh, so happy new year, Lori. Uh, do, do you agree that 2022 was a remarkable year for us? Hey, Joe. Yeah. Happy new year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's uh, been an extraordinary year for for the podcast, at least. <laughs> we've uh, significantly upped our download numbers. And what have we reached now? About 145 countries um, from around the world. Uh, we've had the opportunity to have some really awesome guests join us for our uh, discussions on a few of our episodes. And uh, and and uh, those have come out uh, pretty good. And uh, we've been recognized by the blog site feedspot.com as being ranked as uh, number 33 on the uh, list of the top 50 podcasts. And that's out of uh, thousands of about aliens and and UFOs. So, um, you know, that's a nice honor. And uh, so it's nice to be at that ranking, I guess, and only up from here. Right. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, pretty good year. And of course, you know, we want to thank all of you, our listeners out there for your continued support and, and we hope to bring uh, on another year of interesting topics about some of the famous sightings and encounters that have been reported over the years, as well as, uh, you know, about some unique kinds of phenomena that a lot of us have heard many experts talk about. So, so we do try to dabble in just about everything here, and uh, we're looking forward to our new uh, new seasons. Indeed. And, and yes, thank you all for your support of the program. And uh, we are thinking up some good ideas for 2023. Uh, first of all, Lori and I are going to attend Ancient Aliens Live on January 26th in Phoenix. And that's a Thursday. And, and it will be at the Orpheum Theater. Uh, and that's where it will be held. So if any of you are planning to go to that, we look forward to seeing you there uh, for the live production of the TV uh, TV History Channel episode of Ancient Aliens. Uh, should be exciting. Uh, also, we mentioned that we are going to have Aaron Long from over in England come back on to share with us some more of his research, particularly covering the visions from the book of Ezekiel from the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, that will be for our next episode, which will be on January 15th. And also, we are still in the process of preparing you to get our YouTube show going as well. Uh, we would like to have that up and running um, sometime within the next few months. Right. And uh, that takes a little more technical coordination for us. <laughs> but uh, we're working on getting a video format by which, you know, we can pretty much do what we're doing now with the podcast, but also have it available on YouTube. So, you know, we envision that uh, that as having future episodes that are you know, still able to be downloaded off of Spotify and Apple and all, you know, all the other directories, but also have it so that, you know, it can be seen on YouTube uh, as well. Exactly. So we are hoping to expand the show for this upcoming year. Yeah. And and we don't want to forget to mention that there's a there's a book that we that we're expecting to get out this year, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, Joe and I have uh, co-authored a science fiction novel that is sort of founded on a lot of what w- 
we've uh, been discussing right here on the podcast. Uh, it is uh, completed, and we've submitted it to a few literary agents for publication now, and uh, we expect that to happen this year as well. So That's right. We're expecting to uh, hear back from them really any day now from one of the agents. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully we get some news about that really soon. Uh, we think all of you will like the novel when it is finally published. Um, so anyway, uh, we're going to continue today with the topic we started last time about the extraterrestrial secrets immersed within the Book of Enoch, the mysterious Book of Enoch, which was composed by unknown writers in the second century BC and is ascribed to Enoch, the pre-flood prophet and great-grandfather of Noah. And it contains what you might call encrypted explanations uh, about not only alien beings and their spaceships, but also about flights into outer space and even about time travel. Yeah, and, and also we just want to thank you all for downloading uh, last episode as much as you did. We we really did not expect the Book of Enoch to be so popular, and it showed us that y'all are really interested in uh, this type of ancient writing. Um, so we hope to proceed with, with that as we examine books two and three, uh, as last time we focused more on book one. So here's what I find. Well, I guess intriguing, but really more like baffling. And that is how people in their faith will accept certain things as truth, even without any evidence to support it, yet in the same manner, uh, reject other things on the basis of there being a lack of evidence and saying there is nothing to support it as being true. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, I guess that's what makes faith what it is, belief in something regardless of whatever evidence suggests, right? Well, exactly. It's accepting something as being truth or as being real, uh, not only without any proof, but even in the face of evidence that actually challenges the veracity of those beliefs, uh, even when something like the direct opposite of those beliefs can indeed be proven. Right. And, you know, I, I, I once had a debate with a street preacher um, not that long ago, and he said that the book of Enoch was uh, uh, was considered to be more like fantasy and not as fact. So, of course, I asked him how he can prove that the Gospels and all other books of the Bible are real and not fantasy as well. And then came the typical reply that if it's part of the Bible, then it's true, to which I replied that you know, Enoch should be part of the Bible then because it is referenced throughout the New Testament and is referenced in such a way as to be crucial to formulating Christian dogma. And really, the problem debating someone like this guy is the closed-mindedness. It's the inability to scrutinize your your own beliefs to see if they hold up to being considered truth and thus merely assume the flawlessness of them on the basis of their own personal faith. Meaning because other books like Enoch are not found in the Bible uh, Bibles that they're carrying around with them. They are therefore uninspired because, well, that that's what they've been told all along. Yeah. And, and really the very acceptance of what's uh, thought to be inspired is not even universal. Uh, like we've said before, Enoch is part of the canon for denominations like the Coptic Christians and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And in a, a similar way, the Catholic Bible has books with it within it that are not found within the Protestant ones. So here, here we have some groups of Christian theologians who say books like Tobit and Judith and First and Second Maccabees are divinely inspired scripture. 
And then just down the street, there are others saying that they are not, that they are apocryphal and, you know, should basically be ignored. I know way back when I was part of the Pentecostal church, they were, these books were pretty much never brought up in any sermon or any Bible study meeting. Uh, it's, it's kind of a shame when you think about it, because there is a lot to learn from reading these other ancient scripts that are out there and that were written during the same period of time as the biblical ones, which you know, we're all familiar with. I, I mean, uh, I, for one, was just absolutely fascinated when I did discover that there were other scripture books besides the ones I knew from growing up that were out there. I was just really interested to you know, get into reading them. Yeah, for sure. They they really take us beyond the scope of the Christian narrative that we've taught and uh, and helps us uh, see more of the backdrop to to all of it. And, you know, the Book of Enoch certainly does that. And growing up in the church, we heard of Enoch and that he was taken by God, but didn't hear anything else about his story. And upon reading it, we find out that the Lord loved them so much that he wanted them to see the highest realms of heaven. Yeah, so Laurie, you mentioned that we're going to look at two Enoch and three Enoch today. And while they are the same in essence as one Enoch, there are some stark differences in the texts. Uh, in particular, two Enoch seems to have a lot more uh, Christian interpolations that depict the visions as seen by the prophet, and they correspond more to the medieval worldview, uh, with it illustrating you know, things like realms of heaven as being almost similar to what we find in Dante's works, you know, the divine comedy and, and the inferno, uh, that being with these, you know, several levels of heaven, you know, um, sending up from first, second, third, fourth, and so on, uh, levels of heaven. Now, it too, like one Enoch, was suppressed by the church. Uh, a copy of it, uh, known as the Slavonic text, was found in 1886. Uh, deeply concealed within the library archives of Belgrade in Serbia, and of course was recognized by scholars as having been heavily redacted from much older translations from long-lost uh, Greek and Aramaic scripts. As it is, the Ethiopic text, which is one Enoch, was discovered in Africa only about 100 years before that. And according to Elizabeth Prophet in her book, Fallen Angels and the Origins of Evil, this version of Enoch uh, to Enoch preserves parts that are found or that are from the original manuscripts and have been lost uh, and that are not even in the Ethiopic text. Uh, and it is also believed that the origins of to Enoch is from about the 8th century, but that the oldest copy dates only to about the 15th century. Uh, that's when the first one was actually found of the Slavonic text meaning that the oldest copy they have of the of to Enoch is from the 15th century, so uh, hundreds of years, not thousands of years. Uh, so it is not nearly as ancient as one Enoch. Well, the beginning of two Enoch starts off a little different than one Enoch, as it skips past the lengthy narrative about the Watchers and has the prophet going in, into how he was having a sorrowful dream. Uh, he describes two men waking him, from his sleep. Uh, he doesn't call them angels, but he does say that they were exceedingly big and that their eyes shone like the sun. Now, he is terrified by this appearance, but what is interesting is what they say to him. They proclaim, do not fear, God sent us to you, so you will send to heaven with us today. Uh, the question is, why does the all-knowing, ever-present God need to send two beings to a human and have them bring him to meet with him? 
sounding more like an ancient astronaut to me than anything uh, spiritual or divine, don't you think? Yeah, and it's it's funny. You know, every time an angel in the Bible appears to someone, they have to say, do not be afraid or fear not. Uh, when they show up, they seem to frighten the bejeebers out of people for some reason. Uh, I mean, nobody is said to be awestruck or startled or shocked or even amazed. Instead, they become terrified, uh, like they're seeing a monster. Yeah. yeah, and you have to wonder if angels truly are beautiful as we you know, customarily think of them. Uh, certainly all of the Renaissance paintings show them to be very beautiful. Um, Ezekiel 28, chapter 28, uh, verses 12 to 15, has Lucifer as being the most beautiful of all the angels. But maybe it's not necessarily beauty as we would think of it. Maybe they are beautiful, but at the same time, you know, uh, strange looking, uh, unnatural looking, at, you know, at least to us. Yeah, which is to say perhaps they are alien looking. And when people see them, they can't mentally process it. And actually, that is exactly what exactly what is said uh, of divine encounters or spiritual encounters, that it overwhelms the senses. Um, yes, you must ponder the possibility that the effect on people seeing angels uh, might be the same as the effect on them seeing aliens. So now to Enoch, like we said, also referred to as the Slavonic text, uh, is also sometimes called the secrets of Enoch. Uh, it seems to emphasize a lot more on the prophet Enoch receiving his, this special revelation from God. And this special revelation takes him to see firsthand all of the wondrous mysteries of the universe. He gets close up to the luminaries in their celestial spheres. He encounters the planets and the angels and all the fantastic things that are up there to include the Lord himself. Now, strangely, in this version, Enoch, though he is terrified, uh, seems to be a little more mentally engaged with his trip to to the stars. Uh, You know, in chapter two, Enoch tells his family that he will be leaving for an undisclosed amount of time and gives them instructions on what they should do while he's gone. Then in chapter three, he is taken aloft to the first heaven, which, uh, which is where the clouds are. And that's the clouds. It's the first heaven. And he said that uh, they took him on their wings. And now, however, we, we know from our modern knowledge of aeronautics that he must have been inside a pressurized craft um, of some kind, because the higher you go in, ele- in altitude, the less dense the atmosphere becomes. And then hypoxia sets in, causing you to pass out from lack of oxygen. And like we mentioned in the, in the previous episode, uh, why are spirit entities needing wings at all? We, as mere mortals, need wings to fly. We need pressurized cockpits, but not angels. They're not supposed to be bound by the laws of physics and the laws of nature. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Yeah, so I think we can agree that 
he is most likely inside a craft that is being piloted by two human-looking extraterrestrials. Um, it's also noteworthy that this trip Enoch is taking is not said to be a dreamlike experience, and that's different from, say, Dante's narrative, where it seems to have been you know, put under some kind of spill, or he's you know, been put under some kind of spill. And in chapter four, Enoch is shown uh, the 200 angels who govern the stars and planets that fly with their wings. Uh, now, I don't know if this is the two, it's a, I don't know if this is the same 200 uh, angels that are considered the fallen angels, but, uh, but I think this is very interesting because as this is making it sound like Earth had an advanced extraterrestrial civilization flying about our solar system, keeping order thousands of years ago. Um, chapter four even says that they do the rounds of all the planets. So that's very interesting. And then it continues describing the second heaven as a place where um, the fallen angels are being held to be judged. So, you know, second heaven or the first heaven is the cloud. So where is the second heaven? Um, and it goes on to say that the angels beg Enoch for him to to pray on their behalf. However, Enoch does he does feel sorry for them, but he thinks like we do, Joe. <laughs> and he asks all these questions. He asks, like, how can a mortal man like like me pray for angels? <laughs> um, I think that the second heaven he's referring to is probably a spacecraft or space station positioned just above Earth's atmosphere. Um, this is where they are being held in the prison cells on this ship or station until judgment, which is the only thing that makes sense when reading this scripture. Um, the rest of the chapters all the way up to chapter 16 are Enoch trying to describe technology that he's describing uh, because he's describing the sun as being a chariot on wheels and leaving several gates that, it, it, you know, it exits and enters which may be some sort of like portal or portals, and he's attempting to describe them. Uh, he does his best in trying how to calculate the sun's movement and the moon's phases. And he does pretty good. Um, but in chapter 17, he is in the fourth heaven, and he describes seeing armed troops. Armed troops. Like, I mean, what could he be referring to here? Like, this definitely doesn't sound like spirits um in fact it's in the in the next heaven the fifth heaven that he observed the innumerable armies called gregory who actually looked like human beings and their brothers were actually confined in the second heaven talking about those fallen 200 now the two pilots would enoch tell him about the 200 angels descending on mount Hermon with their leader sentinel uh, now that name sounds familiar, <laughs> uh, pretty close to Satan, and could be where the medieval church took on the name Satan. Um, the archangels are seen in the sixth heaven. Uh, chapter 19 describes them as you know phoenixes and cherubim with six wings, both of which sound like to me as being spacecraft. In, in the seventh heaven, he sees all the fiery armies uh, and corporeal forces, uh, dominions, and the origins of cherubim and seraphim in their regiments in their shining stations like wow yeah and then you hit the uh, chapter 22 uh enoch he gets up to the 10th heaven and this is where he sees the face of the lord and he says that it was so marvelous that he cannot elaborate on it so nothing said that's, that's too, too good to talk about too marvelous <laughs> to put words that's all we can all we have uh the angels gabriel and michael both have to stand him up so he can face the lord 
and he eventually is removed out of his earthly garb and placed in the same clothing that God and the, and the angels are wearing. So, Corey, did, did you know God and his angels wear clothes? <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought they didn't need them. So if the devil wears Prada, I guess the almighty and the, and the heavenly host wears what? Ralph Lauren? <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Just like they are always illustrated as having wings, they're typically shown to be wearing white robes. But yes, the point is they don't wear garments. They don't need garments. People need garments. Passages like this and and the scriptures are actually loaded with them. Show God as being flesh and blood, not spiritual. Right. And and next we read about God as a, again, as a corporal entity. Uh, if, if the previous verse wasn't convincing enough, uh, listen to what uh, it says. The Lord summoned one of his archangels, uh, Pruvio, who, uh, who by name, uh, who was swifter in wisdom than the other archangels and who records all of the Lord's deeds. Um, so is this God's you know, secretary or record keeper? And the Lord said to Puvio, uh, bring out the books from my storehouses. So God has libraries too. And fetch a reed for quick fighting and give it to Enoch and deliver him to the, the choice and comforting books. Uh, Puvio uh, teaches Enoch for 30 days and 30 nights uh, and induces Enoch to write it all out like a madman, I guess. Uh, some 366 books done in 30 days and 30 nights. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, big time elaboration. And we also must uh, take into consideration, too, that uh, the, these books are like written. This is like stories on top of stories. And um, this may not be the exactly how it happened, but, you know, close to it. But the question is. Where are the other 363 books since we are we're, we're only commenting on what the three that we currently have available to us? Yeah, well, uh, we know stuff does get lost. Uh, the other ones were either never found, uh, like some some of the books that are actually alluded to in the Old Testament. Uh, there, there's the book of the wars of the Lord, the Acts of Solomon, the book of Nathan, just name a few. Um, they've never been found or they may never have existed. And the 366 books may mean something allegorical. It's hard to say. Uh, well, I like what God says in chapter 24, though. Uh, he said, hey, Enoch, uh, come sit to the left of me with Gabriel. Very easy to see that this is not a spirit entity, but uh, something with a real body, obviously. Then the Lord starts explaining pretty much the whole meaning of life as he tells or he, as he relates how he brought everything into existence. This is where he becomes God, uh, more in line with the traditional image, I guess, that being of him as eternal and transcendent and uh, occupying a heavenly throne. Yet he is speaking uh, to Enoch like a person uh, with Enoch kind of sitting on his lap. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, this depiction does fall in line with the, the, you know, the more orthodox concept of us having a desire to you know, go before God who, who sits on a high throne in heaven. And to go before him and ask him to explain everything to us. Uh, Enoch gets to do just that. At least that's what he says he does. Um, so as we go into chapters 28 through uh, all the way to chapters 28 through 20, um, sorry, 67, chapters 28 through 67, we find God is telling Enoch uh, how he created everything, how he created everything from the planets to the earth, to the creatures, to the vegetation, to humans, you know, all of creation. And this is really obscure material in, in these chapters, but what this really is, is an expansion 
of the seven-day creation story found in Genesis, as each day of creation is given its own chapter, covering in much more detailed language about how everything was made. And, and God is giving Enoch the, the long version of the creation story. And we also must take into consideration that he also has to describe everything he is being shown and told from his perspective or is from his uh, perception and uses ancient vocabulary to explain all these details. There is going to be a great amount uh, lost uh, of lost uh, in the understanding and mistranslations because of this. Now, in chapter 69, we read about when uh, it was that Enoch was actually abducted. He was taken twice, according to, to Enoch. And the first one, uh, the first time was for 50 days, beginning in the month of Nitsen, which is Nisan, on the first. And Nisan is around March and April on the uh, Gregorian calendar. The second and final abduction occurs in the month of Tizvan, uh, which is Sivan, and corresponds to May or June. Uh, he was also taken on the same day and hour of his birth, some 365 years later, leaving us with the assumption that he was born and abducted you know, in the springtime. So we see that to Enoch comes across to the reader as being very similar to Dante's story. And, you know, who knows, perhaps Dante himself as a poet and as a writer was influenced by the character arc of Enoch. Uh, he could have learned about the apocryphal tradition of Enoch, uh, about his travels into the heavens. The, the story was obviously perpetuated throughout the Middle Ages, and maybe Dante used it to base his style on the telling of, of, of the similar adventures into the nether realms, uh, into the heavenly realms as well, with uh, Virgil, the Roman poet, as being his escort as, you know, instead of some angelic giants. And we've talked before about how the notion of ancient tales of people witnessing extraterrestrials flying through the air and, and into space has been preserved, you know, not only in the literature, but also within the artwork. So really, this imagery has always been with us. And we can see how it has become manifested in mythology, in storytelling, and ultimately in the form of personal faith about worlds existing beyond what is visible to us. The story of Enoch is one of many examples of that. Now, we mentioned book three, or what's called Three Enoch. And again, it's another pseudepigraphic script that is ascribed to the prophet uh, Enoch, uh, but clearly written by someone else. In this case, uh, that author is even identified as someone else, and he has a name, Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha. Um, so this guy lived in Palestine in the first century A.D. and supposedly witnessed the destruction of the temple by the Romans and the oppression of the Jews in the years that followed. So he gives a version of the story in which Enoch himself is actually transformed into an angel and exalted on a throne in heaven and is then given a name Metatron. Uh, this is all said to have been told to Rabbi Ishmael uh, by the prophet himself. Now, Three Enoch is a piece of literature that has been known to exist since the Byzantine era as part of the Apocrypha of the Jewish Tanakh and was under the title, uh, The Book of the Palaces. It actually helped bring forth a school of mystical Judaism called Merkabah, uh, which is Hebrew for chariot. And it was based on the idea of fiery vehicles that could ascend up to God and take people away, uh, just like what we 
find happening not only with Enoch, but also with the stories about Elijah and Ezekiel. The imagery of hosts of angels and many palaces uh, in the heavens is clearly reminiscent to that from the passage in John 14, 2, where we see Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says his father's house has many mansions. Right. And uh, uh, this is uh, this also goes along with what we said before about how during this uh, transitional time frame of the years going from B.C. to A.D. that the scribes who wrote all of these types of manuscripts were focusing more on the things that are above, much like how Paul says to sit not your minds on the things of earth that are of the flesh, but of the things of heaven that are of God. I believe that's Colossians 3, 2. Uh, there actually seems to almost be an obsession with contemplating what was going on up above them in the heavens. And that could be because more and more people were circulating more and more accounts of alien encounters coming from nowhere else uh, but up above. Uh, here again, we have someone, this time it's Yishma, uh, or Yishmael, and from ascending to the heavens and seeing the Merkaba, the chariot, and he enters six halls of one within the other. He says that God is behind the seventh door. And from a physical perspective, phantasmic or dreamlike one, this this sounds to be something almost like the Starship Enterprise. Instead of palaces, maybe he was describing starships, and instead of halls, maybe he meant the decks on board, just like the ones from Star Trek. But anyway, he then meets with a being named Metatron, as you said, and an angel, who later identifies himself as Enoch. So his name got changed to the angelic one, which is Metatron. He then says that, as soon as the princes of the presence of the flaming seraphim saw him, they focused on him, um, and he was numbed by the radiance of their eyes. So, poor guy, this you know, this mere human. Now he's witnessing all of this. I'm sure he's pretty, um, uh, pretty fearful. So, could it be that these princes of the chariot are commanders or the engineers of the spaceship? Could the uh, flaming seraphim be something like energy sources of the ship or even something like robots that maintain and control the energy source or the fuel source or the engines? Um, this is uh, what we mean by angels flying fast with loud sounds and with wings. You know, you know, they, they have to be flesh and blood beings piloting uh, these flying machines. And we see this again in chapter two, verse one, with the e with the eagles, possibly meaning the the pilots of the chariot, the flaming uh, hophenim and seraphim of consuming fire, all all asking Metatron, who is Enoch, youth, you know, or oh, this is what they say, youth, why do you permit one born of woman uh, to enter and behold the Merkaba? And he's talking about the the Ben Ishmael. So they called Enoch youth whenever they referred to him because he was small. Um, he says that he is small and youth among them in days, months, and years. So they must have been old giants. Uh, Enoch was supposed to be 365 in human years uh, when he was taken. But here uh, he's trying to say that when compared to these beings, his 365 years makes him like a child. And this brings into the clarity the uh, the sentiment 
or sentiment that one day is as a thousand years with the Lord. Yeah, and a thousand years is as one day. It's Second uh, Peter three eight. Yeah, if uh, Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha had witnessed something like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in seventy A.D and had witnessed the Roman victory over the Jewish rebels at Masada a few years later, that certainly would have had an impact on his spiritual thinking, as well as that of other religious men. With the temple gone, the belief in the Lord's presence being somewhere tangible on the earth had to shift to it being somewhere more spectral, namely beyond the firmament, beyond the sky where he had always been. And it is in this way that God is depicted as being very extraterrestrial. He is not here on the earth in the temple, but is way up above in what seems to be a spaceship described only in the way that Ishmael knew how to. Absolutely. And you know, Joe, the whole thing seems like a combination of Bible stories and sci-fi. When we get into chapter 5, verse 2, the angels gather together. Uh, and are going down to the earth in parties. It's almost like uh, away teams from Star Trek or even the droid invasion in uh, in Star Wars <laughs> who uh, are from a realm called the Rakia. Almost sounds like it could be the name of a ship from Star Trek. And also in co companies and camps to do the will of God throughout the world. So verse 3 even tells of Adam. That's right. The uh, the Adam that we all know, the one and only from the creation story. Uh, he's sitting outside a gate in the garden and he's watching the uh, radiant appearance of the Shekinah. Because in verse four, it says that the Shekinah traversed the world from one end to the other with splendor. So what is the Shekinah? Well, every Christian has heard of it. The Shekinah glory. Um, it is actually the divine presence where God was right there in the midst of the Israelites. So being a Jewish rabbi, Yeshmahil is talking about the same thing. Then in verses 13 and 14, the Holy One lifted up his Shekinah from the earth saying, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. There's that loud noise. So you see, this is no spirit deity. Um, it has a bodily form. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 2, it goes on about Yishmael being taken in a fiery chariot. Um, again, um, or which you know, lifted him up uh, to the high heavens along with the Shekinah. And it says this chariot has wheels. Again, what does God need with wheels? Um, what does any spirit need with wheels? A real chariot needs wheels, and that's probably why he calls this thing a chariot, because he sees wheels on it. Um, this is clearly misunderstanding of the of the sight of astronauts and the technology they were using. Remember, these, these are writers from antiquity. They are trying their best to describe what they saw using vo the vocabulary they had at the time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, now some may argue that it is for this reason, uh, all these images and these strange names and strange things happening, uh, that Enoch is not part of the Bible uh, because it's, it's not considered to be inspired. It's just too far off from uh, orthodoxy with these bizarre and strange depictions. So therefore, it doesn't matter what it says. But actually, it, it does matter because, you know, the book of Ezekiel, which is part of the Bible, has these same kind of images and has these same kind of events taking place. And you know, like you said, Laurie, the 
very idea of the Shekinah comes from what is found in the book of Exodus, which obviously is also part of the Bible. So this whole style of writing isn't exclusive to apocryphal works. Many inspired works are like it as well. So that alone is not a good reason. Uh, it's not a good basis for them to be rejected simply because uh, they sound strange. Um, many of the biblical books sound strange. Uh, we also remember that these kind of scripts uh, like Enoch were always around uh, and were read by people and long before the Council of Nicaea in uh, 325 AD, when the bishops of the early church established the Holy Bible as we now know it. And of course, we know that they had a certain motive to include books in the canon and to leave others out. And that motive was to secure their political authority. Uh, they were the ones who claimed authentic apostleship. So to them, the ecclesiastical power to say what is inspired and what is not rested upon them. The Book of Enoch simply went uh, too much against their doctrines and teachings. But nonetheless, we can see that it still greatly shaped their theology. They just didn't want to acknowledge it as a source for that. It was sort of like a scriptural uh, white elephant in the room, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's hard to say exactly why they picked some of the books they did. I mean, really, uh, Enoch doesn't uh, seem all the different in style from, say, the book of Revelation. Can you imagine if uh, those guys back then decided that Revelation was not inspired and should not be included in the Bible? I mean, imagine what type of life we would have here in the uh, Western world if Christians didn't know anything about the, the book of Revelation. Um, so, I mean, think of all the movies that are based on the book of Revelation, the end times, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. So in chapter seven, um, the prophet tells, uh, you know, the prophet uh, Enoch tells Ishmael that God took him away on the wings of his Shekinah, <laughs> see, uh, just before the time of the great flood to go to great palaces situated in the high heavens. So um, this is where he sees the throne, the chariot, the troops of anger, the armies of uh, vehemence, the fiery shinimum, the, the flaming cherubim, and the burning ophanum, the uh, the flaming servants, the, the flashing chasmalum, and the lightning fast seraphim, like all kinds of crazy things, right? <laughs> Um, he then said that this is where the Lord placed him so he could attend the throne of glory day after day. So it sounds like Enoch was abducted and brought to an enormous starship where he was trusted with the expertise to work on the many types of, of uh, things on board. I mean, need we say more? Yeah, well, then in uh, you know, chapter eight, Metatron tells of how God had opened up 3,000 gates of understanding uh, Grace, mercy, loving kindness, life, and, and, and five other uh, important virtues. Uh, with, with all three of the versions of Enoch, you know, we're, we're kind of sort of given the same typology here. It's the same, you know, idea that keeps coming up, the same substance. And that is how one man, that of course being Enoch, was chosen out of all of humanity to be granted the passage to become divine, to be chosen by God himself to see the truth of, the, of things. And that was bestowed upon him by having knowledge shared with him by seeing the world from beyond its own boundaries, meaning from out in, out in space, uh, just like an astronaut would see the world from beyond its own boundaries. So whatever the actual basis for the story, uh, whatever the source material of its actual origin, it shows that people have always known that God 
and his heavenly glory resides way above us, way up above in outer space. And the central point that we keep coming back to is that people have always associated strange and unexplainable sightings in the sky with the doings of the supernatural and has being um, omens or uh, signs of divine will and power. Uh, If at one time long ago, alien spacecraft had continuously crossed through our atmosphere, uh, the ancients would have witnessed this and would have told stories of how power of uh, how powerful these deities, uh, that being the alien travelers, uh, dwelt high up in the heavens. So uh, this story of Enoch traveling up there is based on a very long tradition that goes on, uh, goes all the way back to the time when these extraterrestrial ships were flying around. And um, as the centuries passed, the notion of higher powers and godliness became represented by objects being visible in the sky, which indeed is what we see in these in the religious literature and, and uh, artworks. Well, what we find in the Book of Enoch and truly anything that is told about him, whether in apocryphal literature or as manifested in the dogmatic tradition of Christianity, is the search for our own immortality. Um, The visions of his travels beyond this world represent our own desire to meet our destiny, which throughout the centuries has been believed to exist among the stars. Uh, Enoch passes through the sky, going through the sphere where the spirits are said to dwell and keeps ascending higher up to where the light is. This is what we have all been brought up to believing, uh, that there is a heavenly world far above us where God sits and oversees the cosmos. And it is for this reason that uh, we seek to find him up there. And it is for this reason that some people turn to religion and why some also turn to the ancient astronaut theory. Well said. And uh, the Book of Enoch doesn't stand alone in illuminating disbelief. Uh, when you think about it, the very genre of science fiction literature seems to come from the, the same human desire to explore the unknowns of the cosmos as that uh, which compelled uh, as that is which is what compelled the authors of Enoch to write what they did over 2000 years ago and that too is well said <laughs> um, <laughs> so that wraps up our discussion on the secrets of Enoch uh, we encourage all of you to take the time to read it uh, the three versions that we touched upon can be found at most uh, retail bookstores or they can be found as a pdf files on various academic and religious websites if you do an internet search it's worth looking into and studying even if you don't believe it to be a divinely inspired work it can definitely enhance your understanding of the scriptures and it can also definitely enhance your understanding of the theories of um zachariah sitchin graham ancock eric von danigan david childress uh, Giorgio Sukalos and many others who propose that extraterrestrial influences have been with the human race since the very beginning. So on our next episode, we are going to talk about the more about these ancient spaceships or more specifically how the ancient peoples wrote about these spaceships and starships um, that they had seen or heard about. Uh, our special guest, Aaron Long, will join us uh as we examine the biblical visions that portray flying vehicles, particularly that of the book of Ezekiel. And uh, there are others, of course, such as Elijah and uh, the fiery chariot that took 
took him away and and Moses and the descending cloud upon the mountaintop. And, you know, we'll we'll have a lot to talk about and uh, we really look forward to it. Yeah, for sure. And we again want to wish everyone a happy new year. We hope all of you who are traveling are getting home okay with all the winter weather problems that have been experienced across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, We wish you all the best and, and hope you all stay safe. And as always, stay curious. Yeah, we certainly hope everybody uh, gets to their destinations without any more aggravation. (laughs) So uh, please be safe out there. And we look forward to joining you again next time right here on the Alien Talk podcast. Everybody have a happy and joyous new year. And uh, bye now.